0: In the book and musical Les Miserables, two men have their lives twined together. Jean Valjean, the protagonist, and Javert, the prison guard and police inspector, meet time and again. At their first meeting, Jean Valjean has been imprisoned for 19 years for stealing a loaf of bread. Javert is his prison guard, and the authority of the French state is behind him. Once convicted, you were entangled in the prison system for life. Probation, parole, these just extended the walls of the prison. And even though Jean Valjean is unlocked from the chain gang, he is still chained to a life of no second chances. But through the grace of a Catholic priest, Jean Valjean broke his parole. He went on the run. He started anew. Finally, maybe, he was free. But Javert, the police inspector, and his past just kept catching up with him. And in each meeting between Jean Valjean and Javert, it becomes clearer and clearer who is still imprisoned. Jean Valjean testifies the change, how life can get better, how we don't have to be defined by the worst deeds of our past. But Javert cannot see beyond a stark legalism. Javert's own past haunts him. For Javert was born inside of a jail, and he says to Valjean, I was born with scum like you. I am from the gutter too. And Javert never leaves this shame behind, no matter how much he runs to rule and order. Javert is trapped in the criminal justice system as a prison guard, as a police inspector, as an upholder of the system just as Valjean is trapped as a former convict. And when Javert is captured by the men who want to kill him, Jean Valjean takes him aside, spares his life, and shows him the mercy that the prison system denies. Unfortunately, Javert is too caught in the system of punishment, of rules, of order that he's dedicated his life to. One act of mercy and Javert's whole world crumbles. He dies by suicide rather than live in the debt of a thief. There's no grace for one caught in this system. This was true in 19th century France, as it is true in the 21st century U.S., and it was true in the 1st century Roman Empire. There was no grace for anyone Affected by the system. In the book of Acts, when the jailer thought that the prisoners had escaped, he drew his sword to turn it on himself. He might have held the jail keys, but he was locked in the jail system. If people escaped on his watch, the jailer would be executed. And we know this is the case because just a few chapters earlier, when an angel freed and imprisoned Peter, walking Peter past the first and second guards, King Herod was so angry that he immediately executed the guards who had let Peter slip past with the help of an angel. The jailer, in Acts 16, holds the keys His living and his life depend on upholding the system. His household is supported by his livelihood. And freedom for the prisoner is a threat. The gospel of Jesus Christ will overturn everything. It will comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. The gospel will raise the lowly up and toss the mighty down. The fate of the oppressor is tied to the fate of the oppressed. Frequently, we read scripture through the eyes of the poor, the weak, the imprisoned, the people yearning to be set free. And this is holy and good. We need to center the stories of people who are vulnerable and outside of the dominant narrative. But just for today... Let's find how we can connect with those who uphold systems of oppression, reading this passage and the story through the eyes of the jailer. Because all of us, regardless of our particular identities, are in some ways oppressed and some ways oppressor. I invite us to think about how we hold the keys to oppression How we act as jailers. How are we trapped by the same systems that we perpetuate and that are upheld in our names? And before we go on this journey of seeing the ways in which we are trapped in hurting others, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I do want to specify one thing prison is not a metaphor. Incarceration is our country's default way of getting rid of people we don't want to get we don't want to deal with. People with mental illness, people who are poor, people who are black, people who are Latinx, people who are undocumented, people with drug addictions. And all of us sitting in this room, not inside of a prison or a jail, we're implicated. It's big business. It's a prison industrial complex. Our taxes go to incarcerate people rather than address their needs. And in rural areas like the one that I came from, private prisons are major employers. We strip voting rights as a country and as states from people caught in the system. We treat so called white collar crimes differently from blue collar crimes. In fact, we don't even say blue collar crimes because the assumption is that crime is a lower class act. The United States has the highest prison, largest prison population in the world, and the highest per capita incarceration rate. One out of every 38 people in the United States is under correctional supervision. One out of 38. And what do we get out of this? We who are sitting here? Only the illusion of safety. This incarceration problem doesn't actually make us safer. Instead, it creates a perpetual underclass. It's what Michelle Alexander calls the new Jim Crow. This new Jim Crow keeps our country from being the best we can be. And the more we lock people into cages, dehumanizing them, the more we dehumanize ourselves. Hurting others hurts us. Oppressing others harms the oppressor. A few more examples. Punishing people doesn't do anything to restore community. Blaming and shaming others gets us stuck in our own shame. Refusing to forgive creates a poison inside of our own soul. People who gossip are unable to trust that other people are being genuine with them. People who lie find it difficult to trust, period. Oppressing harms the oppressor. Stigmatizing people with mental illness makes it harder for those who do the stigmatizing to reach out for help when we're in crisis. People who fat shame others are more at risk for their own disordered eating and body image issues. Oppressing harms the oppressor. Able-bodied people who disdain or pity or ignore people with disabilities find it incredibly hard to face our own aging or illness or weakness. Men and boys are limited by the sexism that says that boys don't cry and that men are strong and cannot be victims of abuse. Cisgender people are trapped by expectations of what it means to be a man or a woman, and that those are the only two options. Christians can be trapped by equating Jesus is the way with Jesus is the only way. Democrats can be trapped by thinking that they're better than so-called deplorables. If you've ever made fun of a MAGA hat. White people are trapped by white fragility, the inability to handle racial conversations or face our own complicity. Robin DiAngelo, who coined the term white fragility, specifies the most profound message of racial segregation may be that the absence of people of color from our lives is no real loss. Oppressing harms the oppressor. D'Angelo's statement builds on the words of Martin Luther King Jr., who said, Segregation gives the segregator a false sense of superiority, and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. King wrote that from the Birmingham jail, imprisoned there as a so called outside agitator, just as Paul and Silas had been imprisoned for their outside agitation. King is writing to a group of eight southern white religious leaders, including two Methodist bishops. So two out of the eight are Methodist. And King is writing to these people who had called for unity and a delay of justice. And King reminded them and reminds us today that oppression harms the oppressor. And he invites them to get free. He wrote... Just as the apostle Paul left his village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to the far corners of the Greco-Roman world, so am I compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my own hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. That paragraph is famous, and we've probably heard it before, but I want to keep reading The longer quote. King says, Wherever the early Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the early Christians went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey God rather than man. They were small in number, but big in commitment. Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often the arch supporter of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's often vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for this century. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. We will win our freedom because the eternal will of God is embodied in our echoing demands." End quote. So we celebrate today the baptism of the jailer and his household. The Holy Spirit shook the jail, and not only did Paul and Silas walk away as free men, but the very person charged with overseeing their captivity was set free, too. The eight people to whom King wrote, were they set free? The jailer, and the crowd, and the legal authorities, and all of those who arrested Paul and Silas— And mocked them and beat them? Were they set free? And when we stand outside of a prison, knowing that our society is structured in such a way that some people are incarcerated and others think we're free, can we too be set free today? The fate of the oppressor is tied up with the fate of the oppressed. The jailer could not be free until he recognized God's freedom moving in the midst of those who were jailed. Today, we too can be free from holding up systems of oppression. But let me be clear. The purpose of God's liberating activity is not to liberate the oppressor. This is just a happy byproduct of liberation for the oppressed. God calls us oppressor, oppressed, in whatever form that looks, God calls us all to get free. May it be so. Amen.